you're in Marin's head and Marin sees immediately what's at stake because she knows that if she gets on the bad side of her employer, who is the one whose daughter stands to gain if Winnie steps away, then all hell will break loose. Hey everyone, welcome to Lit Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career. I'm Abigail Perry, the host of Lit Match, and I'm always on the hunt for noteworthy literary agents, authors, and stories that make big impacts in the world. Thank you so much for joining me in these meaningful conversations. Today's episode is a special bonus episode to my conversation with Carly Waters. In it, I analyzed the first chapter from one of my favorite books that Carly represents, Girls with Bright Futures, by co-authors Tracy Dobmeyer and Wendy Katzman. Bonus episodes in LitMatch look at first chapters to help writers study strong writing and storytelling that hooks a reader, particularly a featured literary agent, from its first pages. I'm excited to share today's discussion because not only did I get to revisit one of my favorite books, but I got to talk to two wildly talented authors who wrote it. Tracy Dobmeyer and Wendy Katzman are a team of co-authors represented by literary agent Carly Waters. They've been great friends for over 20 years, and their friendship has sustained them through the ups and downs of raising kids, juggling careers, and creating new family traditions. Between the two of them, they have undergraduate degrees from Princeton University and the University of Michigan, a law degree from UC Berkeley, careers in marketing, nonprofit leadership and biotechnology law, two husbands and four kids. Girls with Bright Futures is their debut novel, a dark suspenseful journey into the cutthroat world of college admissions. And it is the story that we are featuring for the first chapter in this episode. To give you a taste of how great stories start, I'm going to read the first page of Girls with Bright Futures. You can find a download of my big picture analysis of this first chapter and what I think makes it stand out in the show notes. Let's get into it. Home of Marin and Winnie Presley, Friday, October 29, 11.30 p.m. If the drool at the corner of her mouth was any indication, Marin's attempt to stay awake until Winnie got home from her babysitting gig was, as her daughter would say, an epic fail. Marin took in the laptop still perched on her chest, which had similarly slipped into sleep mode. With a quick tap, the web search she started before falling asleep flooded her retinas. Out of sullen curiosity, she had Googled the unusual name of the professor she'd met earlier in the evening when she dropped by her boss's house unannounced to deliver their tuned up espresso machine. As the longtime personal assistant to Alicia Stone, one of the most powerful women in tech, Marin met celebrities and power players all the time. This Boston professor didn't seem to be anyone special, likely just another scheme to secure admission to Stanford for her daughter, Brooke. But with the early admission deadline now just three days away, he served as yet another reminder that Stanford was off limits for Winnie, just in case Marin had missed all the previous warnings. Hi, Tracy and Wendy. I am so thrilled to have you here today to talk about this really captivating and engaging first chapter. And you also have a prologue, so it'll be interesting to kind of talk about the prologue versus the first chapter when that all happens. But I'm thrilled to have you listeners. If you don't know who Tracy and Wendy are, you should. You should go buy their book. They're amazing. They had their debut in 2021 and I just immediately fell in love with it. It is everything I want in a story and just immediately was the, the book I wanted to talk about first chapter to pair with 
Carly Waters and the podcast interview with her and her manuscript wish list. So these are two lovely clients of Carly, and I'm just excited to welcome you to the podcast today. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Can you talk about the story so that when we start looking at the first chapter, we really understand why it was the best place to start the story itself. Absolutely. This is Tracy uh, since it's podcast. So basically, Girls with Bright Futures is the story of three prep school mothers whose daughters are locked in competition for a single spot at Stanford. So there's a wealthy tech CEO whose daughter is a mediocre student, her personal assistant whose daughter is the superstar student, and a PTA mom whose daughter is a double legacy at Stanford. Then three weeks before early applications are due, one of the girls is badly injured and an apparent hit and run. The fallout from this incident starts rocking this privileged community until you can't help but wonder if there's any line that these families wouldn't cross to ensure their daughter's futures. It's a suspenseful read, but also with a side of satire, and it takes a deep dive into the college industrial complex, income inequality, and elite entitlement. If you are in teaching, or if you ever have had a child who's gone through the college admission process, some of this stuff is scary because it is so accurate. I am a previous teacher. So when I was reading Girls with Bright Futures, I was like, holy cow, I've seen some of this stuff. This is a really, really meaningful story. And it has the suspense factor to it. So when you are thinking about the genre of the story or the stakes for the story, what are the main values? And do you think that those values differ for the three point of views? Because you do have three POVs in the story. I mean, the common value is that every mother wants what they think is the best for their daughter. That's the story they're telling themselves. Even though that might not be what their daughters want, they are telling themselves they want what's best. Problem is they're all in direct opposition with one another because Stanford has told the school that they're only going to accept one student. Everybody wants the same thing and only one of them's going to get it. So it becomes very high stakes of who's going to get it. And what happens if you don't get the thing that you think is best for your daughter? And they're very different. Each mother-daughter duo has their own dynamics. And one with Alicia and her daughter, Brooke, Brooke doesn't actually want to go to Stanford. It's only the mom who wants that because she thinks that is in the best interest of her daughter. Kelly and her daughter, Chrissy, Chrissy, thinks she does want to go to Stanford. She's been gunning for that, but she a point of having mental health issues. And her mom is also really pushing the Stanford thing because she and her husband are double legacies and they see their position in the center of the socioeconomic spectrum that we tried to highlight where they are very concerned about the college education being the stepping stone to a, a successful future. And in the Marion and Winnie duo, Winnie's the one who really wants to go to Stanford, the daughter, and the mother doesn't really care. She just wants her daughter to thrive in some way or another. But then Marin's very survival and protection and dark secret in her life becomes put at stake by this competition and the one-upsmanship and the length that these parents will go to to try and promote their kids. I felt that all the way through the story. And I think that what you did a really amazing job was 
establishing that risk early in the story and then seeing these women and the lengths they'll go to in order to get what they want, it just drastically shows the difference between some delusionalism between some of these characters. It really starts to become a tremendous story. There's a lot of really great plot things happening. There's a ton of character things happening. And you have characters that you love to hate and you have characters who you're ruined for right from the beginning. But we start with Marin. Would you call this multi-protagonist or would you call this single protagonist with other POVs? We thought of it as multi-protagonist, mm-hmm. but Marin was our alpha protagonist. She had more airtime in terms of if you're looking just at chapters and balance. She's probably 50%, whereas the other two, Kelly and Alicia, make up about 50%. Is that why you chose to start with Marin? Yeah. And Marin plays a role. So Marin is a struggling single mom. And the setting of the story is an elite private school. And she is the personal assistant to this wealthy tech CEO, Alicia, who they have daughters the same age and they end up going against each other. So Marin is only at this school because... Alicia is paying for her daughter. We set her up as someone who's in this world, but not of this world. In order to be able to really elucidate a lot of the socioeconomic jockeying that goes on in this world, we really needed our alpha protagonist to be looking at it from a little bit of an external lens. She's just not really a part of this world. She sees it all. It affects her and affects her daughter, but she's not considered part of the community. Yes. And that establishment of her status, in which in the public eye, a lower status, she is more grounded and has her priorities better. You establish this extremely well in that first chapter, and I believe it makes her sympathetic. Let's look at first, you have a prologue and then you have the first chapter. And the prologue hits on high stakes. You mentioned earlier, Winnie, who's going to be the daughter of Marin, is in an accident. And that really starts to become questionable of if it is an accident or not an accident. So now we have this physical stake stuff going on. But then chapter one really draws us back and takes us to the heart of what I think is the dominant dilemma for the story that gets stickier and stickier and more dangerous. I want to dive into that. But how do you go first into this is a story that is going to do well. It's actually going to do better if we have the prologue before the first chapter versus we're just going to get to the first chapter scene. And is that something that you initially wrote or is that something that took some editing and revisions to get to? Well, everything takes editing. (laughs) You don't read anything and then it goes out the door. I think from the beginning, we started with the prologue and then the structural issue is more we started with the prologue. Then we started with a POV of each of the three main characters to set up the scarcity stakes with Stanford and to introduce you to each character so that you understood what was at stake for each of them when they found out in different ways about this one spot being available. So with the prologue, we decided to start with that because for two reasons. One is our debut novel and we are very rule-oriented people, would you say? So we've done a lot of research in writing and trying to understand what makes a novel work. And one of the things that you read about is this idea of starting your book on your character's worst day. And for Marin, that was the day she finds out that her daughter, who's all she has, has been in this accident. And so we wanted to start with that and also at the same time lay the groundwork for there's a mystery here. There's more 
more than meets the eye. There's some real suspicious stuff. We wanted that prologue to kick things off and set the stage for what's going to come. But then the chapter one takes us back three weeks. So not very long, but the prologue is three days before the Stanford early application deadline. And we make note of that. So you know that there's stuff going on. There's a mystery that's going to unravel. And then going back three to three weeks, roughly before the deadline, when all these moms start finding out from the school, what is at stake? We wanted to start layering all of that. Yes. Yes. Until we catch up with where the prologue starts about halfway through the book. I love that tactic. I think this is when prologues can work. Imagine a police officer, because here you have a police officer knocking in late at night, right? It's never going to be good news when it's late at night and to hear that your child has been in a serious accident that is gut-wrenching. Marin focuses on this is weird. This can't be my end with Winnie. This accident, and it's a scooter accident of all things, like very bizarre accident, not standard car crash. It's fishy. I love how you set that up because it does bring in these external stakes. We're talking like for death here. Like there's going to be some really nasty stuff that's going to happen. But looking at something that's extreme, but not the most extreme event in the book, because we have to raise the stakes throughout the story. So that's really well done. And it makes me think immediately of where the crowd is saying and how we're getting the murder. And then later we're going to catch up. So personally, I said it before, the story did everything I wanted it to do. It ground me, it hooked me, but it left me dangling and I'm going to catch up to it later. And I'm not going to catch up to it just at the end. I'm going to catch up to it. So it's going to get even stickier. Everything I want. Now let's go look at first chapter and how you take us back. And it's really interesting because you have a super extreme situation. And then we focus very much on a first chapter that really works but it works on a more subtle and emotional level. What are the events that are happening in this first chapter? And how did you decide, let's start here? I think the reason to start here was because this is the inciting incident that led to all the madness that is going to unfold. The inciting incident is that Marin is called into school to meet with Winnie and her college counselor and it's told there's only one spot at Stanford and is really being dissuaded from applying. That's the thrust is let other clear the way for other people. Right. And I think it starts bringing you into that mother-daughter relationship and what's happening there. Breaking it down, there's Winnie, who is the superstar student. She's the top student in the class, and she has worked her tail off for all of high school to try and be in this position of being able to go wherever she wants and where she wants at Stanford. And to be railroaded at this final moment, Winnie's reaction is, heck no, that is not going to happen. And she's smart and savvy, and she knows that the reason she's being railroaded is because she and her mom are not as well-resourced as the other people at the school. And, and they're basically told that other people may have a better in because one hook or another, and a lot of times that comes down to money or legacy connections, neither of which she has. She is unwilling to accept that, and she actually is angry with her mom because she sees her mom as folding and sort of being a doormat in that situation, but you're in Marin's head, and Marin sees immediately what's at stake because she knows that if she gets on the bad side of her employer, who is the one whose daughter stands to gain if Winnie steps away, then 
all hell will break loose in her life. She's trying to protect her daughter because she knows that the fallout is something that her daughter can't possibly understand or imagine. And yet she's struggling. She knows that she's having to let down her daughter in a way that is heart-wrenching. So it brings you into all that and that sense of how we throw a lot of stuff in that chapter of status signifiers and really giving you the understanding of how Marin and Winnie have felt being in this environment and not being as privileged. I think that was one thing that made it so important for this to be third person limited. We need to see Marin's thoughts. Protecting her daughter against all odds is very different from what these other mothers are going to be doing. What is the big decision that Marin has to make in this story? Is it about standing by her daughter, it becomes a lot more than that because there's something else Marin's protecting. And I don't think we want to do spoilers, right? No, no, we don't. (laughs) So, but there does hint at it though. And you do, you have a beautiful one line of I'm hinting at some backstory, but I'm not going to spend this chapter on backstory. So I liked that technique of weaving it in, but we're going to get into it later in the book. And back to your question about writing versus editing. Yes. I think every book that you write is a learning process. Perhaps this was on the front end of our writing career. And so we worked really hard at trying to understand how much does the reader need to know to get invested into the story. What we realized over time is that they don't need to know nearly as much as we thought they did in the beginning. We kept stripping things out until we're left with, like you said, that one line. That was just a little illusion. You know there's something there, but now you kind of want to know more. I love that you kept going and to strip it down because that's what makes it such a beautiful setup. You also get in Kelly's daughter, which is amazing. And Kelly, you have the little details that are going to be important, but we're focusing on the stake in this first chapter, which is Winnie's desire to get into Stanford and Marin worrying about that if they pursue this, it could jeopardize a lot more than what Winnie understands. She's very sympathetic. She's an underdog. Automatically, that makes us like her. She's a mother who loves her daughter, has made sacrifices. Tracy was talking about how Marin is in this community, but she is not of this community. So her really keen observation of the community, it makes you feel warmly towards her. Right. Because I think what's interesting about her observations are that you're not only going to identify with these observations if you're in her situation, because in any closed world, everyone at one time or another feels like this kind of ickiness, right? Like that they're on the outside looking in or they're not valued to the same degree as another person or group of people. And so it's a vehicle to help tap everyone's feelings along the way in terms of what we put in there. We're laying the groundwork for it, but there's this sense of she's going to get treated differently, even in something that is supposed to be so merit-based. College is supposed to be about, did you earn it? What are your grades? But she gets called in to this office to be told the what's what. Then you're going to see in the two subsequent chapters how differently the other mothers are treated and also different from each other. There's a sense of unfairness. And I think that is something that really resonates with people because no one likes to feel like the world is unfair. And her voice is so distinct. When you have a limited perspective, it's important to have this distinct voice. With Marin, she's always thinking, thinking, thinking. We can see a setup for how she's going to grow and take on forces of antagonism. 
throughout the story. We definitely lay the foundation. You always want your characters to grow. It's also really interesting because setting, you choose Seattle and you pick EVA as this grounding of setting. And when you open up the first chapter, you immediately immerse married in the setting of EVA. Can you talk to us about why this setting and how did we start to explore this setting through action, through her doing something with it instead of just being descriptive or through dialogue? We act our way into our setting based on the bigger issues we were itching to explore around college admissions. Specifically, we were fascinated by the issues of class divide and income inequality. And one of the reasons we decided to set the book in Seattle, aside from the obvious that this is where we live, is that the extreme wealth that's been generated here through tech in a relatively short span has made the income inequality divide really stark. So it's very firm ground to explore notions of privilege. And schools are places where people of all socioeconomic backgrounds come together ostensibly on equal footing. It's interesting for us to Think about what happens when people with different levels of wealth or lack thereof inhabit the same community and then come into direct conflict. So we intentionally set our story at this very privileged private school, which we've called Elliott Bay Academy, totally fictional to show this. And in some ways, our setting became almost like another character. And while Seattle and the EBA specifically were great settings to explore these issues, we knew for a fact that these are the same forces that we were seeing are affecting parents throughout the country. We've had the privilege of doing book groups with groups all over and our very fictional world translate all over. All the ages from preschool all the way on up to college. Yeah. And you pick Stanford as the creme de la creme of applications. I am curious why Stanford versus any other Ivy League? Because you mentioned a couple other ones. And actually, this is a question that Marin asked Winnie, right? Very simple answer was that Stanford, for probably more than any other university, has been number one on the U.S. News and World Report list more often than not over the last 10 years or so. And also, we are on the West Coast, and we were featuring a prep school on the West Coast. There's definitely a West Coast bias for a lot of families where they want the best school on the West Coast. <laughs> So it was a pretty easy choice for us. It's a very easy status signifier because everyone knows Stanford. We didn't have to spend, as you know, you only get 100,000 words for this type of novel. And we didn't want that waste any words trying to create a fictional university. Everyone knows Stanford's a great school, how we coveted. We wanted to use all of our words on creating our fictional prep school environment to, to sort of really bring that to life. It was really as simple as that. I love that because I think that writers often are debating, do I fictionalize something or do I use something that's real? When looking at the structure in the main story versus the structure of the scene itself, what do you think is the main event of the scene? And then how did you go about elevating our attention towards that main event so that we were hooked and wanted to keep reading? I think the main event was learning of the one spot. Yeah. Because that's the first time you learn about it. Yeah. So there are the stakes. The way that we elevated is through the heightened character relationship. So when, once you got out into the car and you're seeing the conversation between Winnie and Marin and you're feeling the stakes in this relationship. Do we let Stanford go? Do we go for it? I think that is part of what keeps it turning because now you're starting to feel emotionally invested in this inciting incident. So mm -hmm. it's high stakes, but then really starting to get into the emotion of the relationship. 
And to the structural issue, if we had that chapter one as it was without our prologue, I don't think it would have worked as well. I think it would have grabbed a certain number of people because especially we did it well enough that you're invested in the story. But I think there's a sense of foreboding and vulnerability that you're seeing these characters that you like. I mean, you have substance to them and they may be fucking heads, but they love each other and you feel that and you know there's some life there. And then you already know that something terrible has happened. We felt like the juxtaposing that prologue with the first chapter was a good way to hook the reader. Excellent. At the end of each podcast, I like to do a lightning round. Okay. I'm going to give you three questions and you're going to ideally answer these questions in one sentence. Question number one, for writers who are in the revision process especially their first chapter. What would you say to give them energy and enthusiasm, even as it gets exhausting? Keep asking yourself why you're writing this book. That's great for editing in general, because we forget sometimes why we're writing. Not only does it give you personal motivation to keep writing, but it also helps you target your first chapter to accomplish what you want it to. There's a reason that you picked this book to write. What is it? How can you make sure that you're going to communicate that quickly and hook your reader? I love it. Okay, I'm going to add one step. Go for it. <laughs> if you are struggling too much with that first chapter, I think you can't be afraid to say, have I started in the right place? You have to be willing to be open to say, have I picked the right place? And we definitely had those conversations. That's great. And I love that you keep having those conversations. For question two, you are co-writers, co-authors. So it's amazing. You write together and then you edited with the professional editor. I'm curious because both of you are writing the first chapter and going back and forth with your ideas. Who was your editor? And when they came into the conversation, did you feel like they were asking similar questions or did you think that they were asking different questions? And how did you respond to that in a way that can push this to the best first chapter? So our editor is MJ Johnson. I'm Source Bugs Landmark, and she was amazing. She had a tremendous value throughout our book. She had such a keen eye for how to heighten suspense. Her insights were fantastic. And just helping to sharpen the suspense and helping it build. We really respected everything she brought to the table. She was wonderful. A shout out to MJ Johnson, because I think that you helped make an amazing book. And thank you for all of you bringing this into the world, in addition to Carly and the team of people that bring stories into the world. Thank you to all of them. You can look at the acknowledgement section for Tracy and Wendy. I'm sure that they have lots of people that they think. Question number three, when you're asking what's going to make the best first chapter, are you starting with character, with plot, with setting, with dialogue? What's your center? And then how do you streamline everything from there? All of the above. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have to mix. You're balancing all of those things. Definitely. You have to introduce a character quickly in a way that makes people want to keep reading. You have to have a setting that's interesting. You have to have dialogue that helps you show and not tell. You have to feel sense of what is the conflict? What's the problem? Or at least foreshadowing the problem that's coming. Like baking, where you have to get all of your ingredients and measure them out correctly. That's why you have to edit a gazillion times. Till the cake rises. Being brave enough to see what happens for allowing it to bake into whatever it's going to rise into what it's going to be. And I love that you've done that. I think you have done an amazing job with this first chapter, this prologue, the story. 
I cannot wait for your next books. And I just appreciate both of you so much for the stories that you're putting into the world. It's such meaningful work and for spending time with me today and helping us dissect first chapters and helping other writers do the same for their stories. Well, thank you so much, Abigail. We absolutely loved being here with you and we are so grateful for your enthusiastic support and it means the world to us. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Lit Match. You can find my analysis for the first chapter of Girls with Bright Futures in the show notes. If you liked listening to my conversation with Tracy and Wendy and would like to hear more episodes, please make sure to pass the show on and write a review. This helps me reach more writers ready for submission or who want to grow their writing craft. If you have any questions or recommendations for Lit Match, please email me at abigailkperry at gmail.com and I'll do my best to answer you. I hope you'll join me for next week's show. In the meantime, keep writing and searching for the best literary agent for you. 